Hello and welcome to Tinker Talks. This is an audio format podcast about what goes on behind the fence of one of the Air Force's largest bases. I am your host, Mark Hybers, and this week we are excited to be joined by the director of the 448 Supply Chain Management Wing, Mr. Dennis D'Angelo. Good morning, sir. Actually, good afternoon, sir. Sorry. Uh, afternoon, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Um, so if you would, could you please give the audience the kind of the 200-word or less breakdown of who you are and how you got to this point? Sure. Uh, I've spent 30 years in the Air Force, uh, worked my way up from flying airplanes all the way to repairing them. Wow. And uh, I have an additional uh, 10 to 11 years. I'm on my 11th year as a civilian uh, in, in the Air Force, but also I spent time in the, in the Army. Probably my forte has been in uh, developing supply chains that were used out in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was part of my job as a member of the U.S. Transportation Team, U.S. Transcom, right. as well as uh, my jobs at uh, United States Africa Command, United States European Command, and uh, also United States Central Command. And that was my previous job at United States Central Command before I came to this one, where I was a deputy uh, director of logistics. So this job is new to me. It's a change in the way I do business. This is commodity management to some extent, helping the supply chain and keeping the Air Force uh, uh, running day to day. But it also taught me that anything I broke as a pilot when I was a young guy, I get to fix as an old guy here today in, uh, in this world. But it's a pretty heady job. It's a lot of fun and pretty exciting. But that's a little bit about me. I've got some experience in the Air Force, a little time in the and the different services in the joint community, and then back here to be uh, Air Force uh, Director of Logistics. Awesome, this is kind of, you've kind of come full circle. That's that's nice to close the loop like that. Um, so if you could, supply chain's not very well known to a lot of people. Um, could you give us kind of a, a little bit of breakdown as to what the supply chain is? Sure, um, what I'll do is I'll tell you an overview of what the supply chain is and then I'll just kind of give you an idea of what my organization is and how we support that supply chain concept. Sure. You know, if you look at the supply chain, it's just basically everything that is necessary to maintain our weapon systems mm-hmm. uh, throughout the Air Force. Right. Um, the Commodities that we use day to day are the ones that are usually repairable, things like that. Those that are uh, expendables, those things that uh, you know basically we consume, which we would consider to be consumables, are actually handled by the Defense Logistics Agency, DLA, okay. and they do most of that work. But anything beside that, parts, organ, uh, unit um, uh, uh, components that are put together and all that are part of the supply chain. So uh, if you look at any airplane that's flying out there now, it's an amalgam of the supply chain. In other words, all those little parts have to come into harmony in close formation to fly the airplane. So every part that in there is either a DLA part or a part that's come through the supply chain. Now the supply chain is broken up into basically two organizations. It's the 448 Supply Chain Management Wing, of which I am the director. Mm -hmm. And then there is a sister organization, the uh, 635th Supply Chain Operations Wing, which is located at Scott Air Force Base. The two make up the complete supply chain. The 448th is basically procuring those commodities, getting those parts, and putting them on the shelf to include contracts that we work with contractors as well. And we supply the depot and we supply the field, but we supply the field, in other words, the units that are actually fighting and flying the missions forward. We do that through the 635th. We put those parts on the shelf. They take them off and put those into the uh, into the coffers of the uh, of the units that are out in the field. So the two of us make up the complete supply chain. Right. We often say that I'm the 
wholesale part and the retail part is actually the 635th. So you might look at it from that perspective if you were kind of thinking about the Lowe's model or the Walmart right. model. Okay. <laughs> And then uh, in my organization, we're kind of broken up into, uh, we're geographically separated. We're three units. The headquarters is here at uh, Tinker Air Force Base, but I have a unit, the 638th uh, Supply Chain Management Group at Warner Robins in mm -hmm. Macon, Georgia. It supports that ALC there at Warner Robins. And then I have one at Hill Air Force Base as well, the 748th Supply Chain Management Group, which supports uh, all the fighter work that's being done, and the ICBM workforce, all the, uh, the nuclear part of the, the inventory from that location. Here at Tinker, I have two groups. I have the 848th Supply Chain Management Group, who works all of the material that is in support of the depot here, which right. includes all of our ta uh, tankers, it includes our bombers, those types of weapon systems to include also the E3 uh, aircraft to tell you the truth, the B-2's in it, but that's kind of done from afar. Right. Okay, mm -hmm. and then uh, I have the 940A Supply Chain Management Group, and they're sort of like my uh, my analysts who do a lot of the analyst work that we do because a lot of that type of information, uh, the information we do to run the system requires an analysis viewpoint on it. And uh, so those are the groups that make up the wing and how they're geographically separated. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that puts, that's about 3,000 people total that I that I operate with. As a big operation, yeah. hard to get your head wrapped around it. Um, I think it would suffice to say that there would be no warfighter without a supply chain, and especially it's kind of the way you just broke down just how big and, and vast this is and how this all comes together. Can you give us a little bit of insight to exactly how important the supply chain is to the overall mission? Well, readiness would be directly impacted by the fact that there would not be supplies to be able to either modernize the weapon systems we have or sustain them. So without the supply chain's ability to find the parts or the units and then provide those parts and pieces mm -hmm. to uh, the different organizations at the ALCs as well as the fields forward, you wouldn't have the readiness that you would have today. Uh, there's a unique element too within this. You know, we t I talk about the depots and the depots, I give them parts so they can make them. Mm -hmm. But there's also the cases where in the, dep in the case of the depots, they actually make parts for me because right. I give them the raw materials or the right. small parts and then they assemble them into full units and then they provide the units back to me. So if I were to make it easy <laughs> and uh, what the people can't see on the uh, podcast is that I'm holding a pen. Okay. If I had the elements of the pen, every one piece of the pen, that would be what the supply chain would give to the depot. The depot would assemble the pen and then they would hand it back to me and maybe a month later they would ask for the pen to write the check on something. So they actually assemble parts for me or do components and they put them back into the system with me. So the depot is either one of the customers or they become actually a manufacturer for me as well in the wow. way we do business. But let me give you a couple quick facts about okay. what that means. Sure. So if you were to take all the material that I have and that would be uh, what I actually have an annual buying power, what, that, what I have as value that I give out to the customer and in inventory, and then some of the things I do for the foreign military sales pitch, which I do, I, I support 50 countries for foreign military sales as well, about $450 million worth of work. If you total that all up, that comes to about $62 billion worth of buying power. 
<laughs> and if you kind of look wow. at that in, in buying power and you say, well, wh what does that mean? Right. Let's just talk Fortune 500 companies. I would be a Fortune 500 company. I'd fall in right around 389 and I'd be pretty doggone close to being near what John Deere would make in a year. I think I'm a little bit better than John Deere, who's somewhere in the, in the 100, I mean, 60 million area, and I'm about 62 million. Now, I'm not a Lowe's. They're, they make hundreds of millions, <clears throat> excuse me, but we're still a pretty big buying power. And with that buying power, we're able to produce approximately $102,000, uh, excuse me, 102,000 different assemblies and end items that just basically be big components. And I track over 222,000 serviceable assemblies at a time. So I've got a lot of people, 3,000 total, mm -hmm. like I said, spread across each one of my organizations that are watching that many. I am probably, for the amount of money that I, I cover, I have the least amount of manpower. Not that I'm out to bid for more manpower. I'm just saying right. that in, in the world, if you look at those Fortune 500 companies, they will tell you how many people they have. Right. You know, like a Lowe's would have, I think, uh, yeah, I think Home Depot had 220,000 people like that who work throughout their whole organization. Wow. And I'm, I'm, I'm much smaller at 3,000, but My yet goodness. I carry quite a bit of clout. So there's a lot of buying power. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little bragging in there that we have a lot of <laughs> a lot of material, but without those that amount of money, without us able, able to manage that amount of money, find contracts so that we can have those contracts readily available to buy parts, and then having parts on the shelf so somebody can use them, the readiness in the Air Force would be considerably less. And later on, I think what we'll do is I'll bring up some things that we're doing in the world of uh, of readiness right. that where I can actually show you how we've been able to leverage that with some direction from the Air Force. Awesome, and that, that is impressive. Um, my goodness, that's a that's a whole lot to to feed on right there in in one little two minute segment. Um, so, but we do know that the 448th and its associate units have significant impact for the Air Force. You also talk about uh, if you were to give the ALC a pen, the parts for a pen, and they produce it and give it back to you, and then you sell it. Are you able to sell it outside the Air Force for one? And what kind of impact, you mentioned foreign, foreign sales, what kind of impact do you guys have and what kind of work do you do that touches the exterior to the Air Force. Yeah, let me, I'll talk a little bit about all the agencies that we touch. Okay. okay. You mentioned foreign <clears throat> military sales, and I mentioned earlier about 50 countries that we do work for. Some of that work is older weapon systems, you know, and they're, well, I won't say the F-16 is an older weapon system, but there's some older versions of the F-16 that we have to maintain parts for. So we have to, we have to find those parts and maintain them and keep the readiness of our allies in many cases that we have to do that. Uh, F-15 is the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we are learning from our allies as well as we go through things to improve readiness our uh, ability to look at how our allies have modified aircraft or have bought new components such as wings for the F-15, we may want to use that expertise and actually roll it backwards or take their experience, roll it into our supply chain and then be able to support the weapon systems like we have. The, the F-15s with wings that uh, are out there today, you know, we're trying to make sure we keep those wings as fresh and new as possible as we've run the airplanes for quite some so many years. Right. Uh, also, we touch within our own uh, 
services. We touch the Navy, uh, Army. We have arrangements to provide such things as propellers. We provide all the C-130H model propellers for the Navy. We the, the Army works with us to provide helicopter blades for our H-60s and things like that. So there's this kind of give and take where the supply chain is constantly in, uh, in, in, uh, in motion working with other services to maintain either their weapon systems or our weapon systems through their supply chain capability. There's also the Defense Logistics Agency. They're a big, big, big player in all the work that we do. They provide those consumable parts, rivets, bolts, nuts, things that we would throw away. Right. They actually do that. And they work through larger contracts to, uh, to leverage uh, some of the original equipment manufacturers to buy larger components and to support. So we, we work with them. As a matter of fact, I meet with uh, the uh, DLA uh, aviation uh, deputy, uh, Mr. Charlie Lilly, uh, on a weekly basis, and, and, and his number two, uh, Kathy Contreras, who's actually a con contract, excuse me, she is a contract specialist, government contract specialist, right. mm -hmm. uh, who's, they've been immensely helpful in how we manage the supply chain throughout the Air Force, uh, and our discussions are, are quite spirited in how we find parts to get things in a good way, spirited in a good way, yes, and all that. <laughs> um, the Navy, uh, we, we meet with them on propeller issues, the Army as well. Uh, we, all of them we have a large play in. And then most recently we've been looking at ways of, uh, you know, potentially increasing our ability to use new types of technology. I think I'll probably, I, we'll probably talk that, I'll kind of park that new technology to get into that in depth later, but we've been talking to the Marines on how they do their uh, advanced manufacturing and, and additive manufacturing is one of the things that they've actually become quite good and we're kind of looking at them as well, how they might be able to provide support to us if we cannot do it on our own. Right. So the services are in there. Um, and then, of course, we work directly with uh, the industrial base, our contract workers as well, the contract workforce that we have mm -hmm. that we actually, uh, you know, we contract parts from. And that they're in small business as well as the larger businesses that we have. So the Pratt & Whitney's, the Boeing's, the Lockheed Martin's are mm -hmm. probably the obvious. But some of the less obvious are the small companies that we work with that are smaller scale and all that. Extremely, those small businesses are extremely important to us from the standpoint that they make up a good portion of the industrial base and they give the supply chain the flexibility and the resiliency that we need. If we couldn't get something from a large manufacturer, we may be able to go down to a smaller manufacturer who will be able to produce parts in the numbers that we might ask for. And those numbers may be considerably less than a larger uh, OEM would want to do. They want to do thousands of parts. We may need hundreds of parts right. and we can find smaller contractors. So we work with them. And then finally, within government, we do work and help support not only our parent command, uh, Air Force Material Command, but also at Air Force level, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, effort that we put into helping shape what the future of the supply chain as well as how we do depot work. Right. Uh, we have a big input in that. And then finally, we also work at the OSD level, at the Office of the Secretary of Defense, to shape the future policies of, of supply chain and, uh, and distribution management. So we touch a lot of people in this job. Incredible. And with all with just 3,000 people, it's, yeah. uh, it's yeah. amazing. So, sir, if you don't mind, we're going to switch gears here real quick. Mm -hmm. um, so everybody knows about science, technology, engineering, and math, or better yet known as STEM. Um, we have started to hear some, some things coming from you and, and your great organization over here. 
um, about a new initiative that you're calling STEAM. Can, can you fill us in a little bit of, about what that initiative is and, and where that's headed? You bet. Um, STEAM doesn't mean I'm full of hot air. <laughs> right. <laughs> Though maybe after you hear this, you'll think that. But actually, the STEAM part takes science, technology, education, and math, I mean, excuse me, engineering and mathematics, and it sandwiches in the A, which is artisans. Mm. Because even though you'll have highly technical uh, skilled people who can do the science and technology and the engineering to develop new weapon systems and to sustain them, you absolutely need the artisans to do the work, right. to actually put the parts and the components on the airplane. Uh, and, and this is probably more in the, the depot area, the, you know, like the Warner Robins depot, the that one at uh, Ogden and Hill Air Force Base. Right. Those depots are more worried about that, but we see it that we need those types of artisans as well, and we're looking to expand the envelope to see how we can bring folks in. Let me give you an example of where I think this comes into play. Okay. Um, recently, I was at a, an event in Atlanta. It was the maintenance, repair, and operations uh, um, uh, symposium that was held down there to take a look at, at, at how we would do the repair and the maintenance on assets. And this was, this was a military event, but it, it had uh, commercial focus as well. They usually do one of these on the commercial side of the house as well. And, and during the event, since we were in Atlanta, the CEO of Delta Airlines came in. And he mentioned that he needed highly technical people, I mean, highly skilled uh, technical people, but he also needed artisans who could do the work. He needed welders. He needed people who could do sheet metal work. He needed people who were uh, aircraft mechanics, who were also had inspection authorization to be able to maintain the airplanes under FAA certification. Mm -hmm. Many of the same skills, if not all the same skills that we need. At that conference, he said, when a person came out of a technical school, if they had good grades, you know, the highest grades possible, and it was a good hard school, he'd be willing to pay up to $100,000 a year for that person to come work for them. Right out of school. Out of school. So there's, there's you know, a lot of people are going in to do, to go to college to get some type of, uh, of advanced degree, but there are needs for people who can do technical skills and can be paid very, very nicely on the commercial market. I probably won't pay that much in our market. I mean, it's just a... It's just the way we are. Right. However, the benefit that I think the government brings in is that you know we do have a system that that when we bring a person in and they prove in their worth after their probationary period and all that, we we work with them very hard to provide them the skill sets they need to advance them to train them. Uh, I think in the future to maintain the type of highly technical people who are skilled in science, technology, the engineering, and mathematics, as well as the artisans. We'll probably have to work with industry to determine how we keep that workforce going. Right. Because I think all of us are going to compete for the same small pool of people that can provide the resources that we need. So we're already talking at the uh, Air Force uh, Sustainment Command level or Sustainment Center level, uh, as well as at the depot level, and how we might have a process by which we share that manpower pool. Now, what do I mean by share? Right. right now, we don't know what that looks like, but I, I, this is me envisioning what that might look like. It might mean that I train folks, 
get them up to speed with the idea that probably they will turn over and some of them will go back to industry. Mm -hmm. And then after a time, we would like to see those people come back to us because we have a, an opportunity at a higher level, maybe a management or a leadership level, and those people would come back and we would see that influx of people moving up and down. We're in, uh, I've had some discussions with the folks at Lockheed, also at Delta, on what that might look like from a supply chain perspective, because that's where I'm most concerned right. and all that, and how we might share people. But there are really great opportunities for young people and older people too, right. you know. Mm -hmm. I, maybe when I retire from this job, I'll, <laughs> I'll get that welding degree I always wanted, you be know, and artisan. all that, but I could be an artisan. Mm -hmm. And I know that we have older people uh, who are of retirement age or have been past retirement age who've wanted to come back and give to the service again. They, they were either service members who left and went to work for industry and now they've retired and they want to come back. And many of them have the artisan skills that we look for and we have hired them. Right. We've hired them back in to do work in the depots or hired them into my supply chain to do work. So to bring it full circle, uh, STEM, I think everyone knows, but we want to add the artisan in there because the artisans are equally important for us to accomplish our, our mission. We know that in the future, the job pool, the job number, the jobs will be there, the job numbers will be high, the pool of acceptable people that have the skill sets, either from STEM or STEAM, mm -hmm. will be a smaller and we need to work with industry to be able to spread that wealth around. And then finally, there are ample opportunities for young people and older people who want to give back to the nation and do that through uh, our depot or through the supply chain. And we awesome. look forward to bringing them on. That's great. The partnerships, we're big into partnerships um, and very insightful, sir, actually to, to think about um, understanding the fact that, and, and I've, I've always really admired this a lot about civil service, certainly, is that they're very focused on uh, cultivating talent and and very open to bringing that talent along and up and even if that means that they're not going to work specifically for you anymore you're about growing people letting them move on and and it's kind of insightful that you even say that we understand that we may eventually lose them to outside markets um, but that's okay we're still you know that's that is the the culture that we live in and i, I think that's a great culture before um, you go on, let yep, me, let me sure. touch that just for another second. Sure. Um, thanks for opening that door, uh, and let me jump through it here for a second. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's really important for us to realize that uh, there are some really great benefits by being in uh, the government or DOD workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, we, we have a culture of growing our folks and giving them opportunities. Sometimes people will argue that it doesn't seem that way. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times you won't be stymied into a job. We'll, we'll, we'll look for other opportunities and you do have the opportunities to move. I will tell you in the supply chain as well as other places from my experience in the uh, Air Force as well as my time uh, as an Army civilian, we were very open in DOD to allow people to advance and move on. Uh, because we felt if we made it good for them to live in our environment, they feel comfortable about it, but they want to advance and we didn't have the opportunities for advancement and they left us. They usually left the, the hole was usually easily filled because somebody saw the organization was open to advancement and okay. to, uh, to growth for that individual. And I think many times people look not so much at what they make and pay, but they look at, do I like the organization? Is there value for what I'm doing? Is there a possibility for growth in the future? And I think the Air Force and DOD as a whole 
as a civilian in, in the workforce, and that workforce, as well as our military, have those opportunities. Sometimes you don't find those on the outside as readily. Right. Absolutely. So thanks. Oh, yeah. Thank you, sir. Um, so we've talked about STEAM a little bit. Um, I do know that you guys are, are working on some other things. I think I've, I've seen some videos in production and some things. Could you, could you touch on maybe one or two other initiatives that the, the supply chain is working on? I can, I can do that, you bet. Um, a couple things. What we're trying to do in the supply chain is work with, uh, the, um, with the program offices to be more predictive in what we believe the need will be for material for the aircraft. Mm. That's parts and pieces and things like that, not just the raw material. Uh, in today's environment, um, we are working with older weapon systems. Some could go as long as 100 years. Now, if you put that in perspective, that would be like me maintaining a Sopwith Camel from World War One. <laughs> right. You know, it would probably be somewhere in the 20s, but, you know, it would be pretty close. Mm -hmm. um, so we have got some challenges to maintain the aircraft with the uh, in obsolescence. And so we are looking at new ways to be more predictive so that we can determine where the failures would be next. Because in many cases, it's hard to go out in, in the, to the industrial base that's modernized and ask them to build the old material again. Mm -hmm. Even the original equipment manufacturers kind of look a little cross-eyed at you as when you ask them for a piece that hasn't been built 30 or 40 years, and suddenly the airplane says, I need that part. Right. So to keep the readiness that we want, and this is kind of back to where we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. we are looking at things like how we can take the large amount of actual data that we have and make that into information and eventually work that into knowledge. So we think we'll be using, we're actually moving in this direction of using artificial intelligence to do that. Okay. So, uh, you know, machine learning, the Watson things that you hear from IBM right. and all that. Uh, uh, one of my doctors actually employed Watson to crunch terabytes of data so that he could advance the capability of other doctors within his, his fold, his Wow. Uh, his organization. We're going to do the same thing. We've kind of employed the same concept. We want to take, we are awash in information because we've captured so much data over the years about each one of the weapon systems or the engines that we maintain. We can take that data and we can, we believe we can crunch it through artificial intelligence. We've already done this in a test case and we've proven it to work. Incredible. So we know it, it will work. Mm -hmm. And we, what we'll be able to do is our goal, and I'm going to use like an engine, for example. Suppose we have the engine that's on the KC-135, the F-108 uh, engine. We might know that we have a part that's broken now, but we're not so certain what the next part will be. Right. So there is a move afoot to instrument those called CBM Plus, Condition-Based Maintenance Plus. But before I get to that, I would say that we could take the data we already have on that engine, and we probably could run it through a Watson you know, an artificial intelligence. And we could make all that huge number of data into some type of information of which our analysts could take a look at it and say, here's probably the, a prediction on what the next major parts or components that would break. And then they would give me that data and I would run it through the same process, but now I look at it from the supply chain. What's the likelihood that the supply chain could find the parts, could either build the parts, find the materials, whatever it takes in the timeline at which you need it before the failure actually occurs. Right. <clears throat> Um, the ability for us to produce parts is only restricted by the timeline it takes to build those parts. If we're less predictive, 
then we always get crunched where we need something and now the supply chain or the industrial base can't build it in a timeline. We think that by using artificial intelligence, taking existing data we have, supplemented by condition-based maintenance, uh, plus the uh, airplanes will have their own system by which they'll feed back information. We believe that we can actually become more predictive. Are we there yet? No. Right. Are we on the path to being there? Absolutely. So that's one of the areas. Uh, that also touches the issue of obsolescence that I mentioned. That's the biggest piece for us. Right. You know, how do we build old parts? Mm -hmm. Some parts are, you know, they're old drawings. They have to be made into new, uh, you know, uh, computer-aided design drawing so they can be used in the computer-aided machinery that does this. Right. So we're looking at how we update some of the, the materials that we have from, from a drawing standpoint or even reverse engineering some of the things. And, and that will go on to the, the, the processes that the depots are using to use advanced manufacturing, like additive manufacturing, where we actually print the piece right. and all that. And, and I believe you'll see that printing capability become uh, more and more uh, valuable to us and, and probably see it more in use in the future. Uh, in many cases, uh, the, the printers right now to make major components that will be used on aircraft, I mean, the actual structurals and things like that, we're, we're probably years away from making that complete move. Some companies in the engine world, like uh, I believe GE is working on additive manufacturing to produce things, we may be able to work with them in concert and actually have them certify our machines to do work on some of their engines and actually print parts in the future for the for the engines that are no longer their mainstream engines like those on the KC-135. So uh, additive is in there. And then finally, I think the, the biggest issue that we're working now is on supply chain risk management. Mm -hmm. How do we manage the risk that's within the supply chain? Some of the things I mentioned, right? Their obsolescence and old equipment, trying to find who would build the parts the industrial base, uh, base is shrinking some. The amount of people who actually pour castings that we need in many major components or actually do forgings has shrunk right. from a, a large number to about four or five companies now. So there's wow. competitiveness on where you can get your time into the into their production line. They mm -hmm. actually run how, you know, and if you're not already on their production line, you're probably not on their production line for some years. Right. There's, uh, there's risks of, uh, you know, having people influence the system from outside, this type of sabotage or, you know, what type of control do you keep uh, within the supply chain to make sure you can, you can track the part all the way from the ore that it's smelted from to the actual bolt or, or component you put on the airplane. So those things we're looking at as well. And we've actually, we've actually gotten into supply chain risk management. We started out very easily by capturing some concepts that we thought would be the, the easiest to get to, to to test our idea of of having a way to envision where the risks are in the supply chain. So we did that with weather. Right. We, we basically okay. went in. We talked to Commerce. They they had a similar system. We were able to pull in uh, NOAA, the weather gurus of uh, of government. We mm -hmm. pulled this together, and we were able to go and look at all of our contractors and say who's in a zone that might be in, impacted by either heavy snowfall, hurricanes tornadoes, whatnot, and, you know, it's probably like the whole world, right? But anyway, <laughs> these days, actually, right. yeah, it feels that way. Mm -hmm. But actually what we were able to do is look at what the impacts are. And then when weather occurs in those areas, let's say a hurricane is headed towards Florida, we can say these are the companies that are going to be impacted, and we start to work with that company to see ahead of time mm -hmm. where they would move their assets to to make sure there's no 
you know, stoppage or slowdown in the supply chain when the supply chain requires, right. you know, a constant flow of parts. So that's one of the areas that we're looking at. It's very important to us. Go ahead. You were going to ask Incredible. a question. Incredible. Well, I was, I was going to say that, um, I mean, it's just a, a smaller, more lethal, sustained force that, I mean, it's just, you nailed it all right in that, that one area. And even with the additive manufacturing, I mean, we're just kind of standing at the the foot of a mountain right now, but I think our, it seems like our ability to get to the top of that mountain is going to happen probably pretty quickly um, because of a lot of the work that you guys are all doing. It's, it's just very incredible. Um, so we look at all this technology, um, I'm going to jump around here a little bit. How do you see the technology changing and helping your efforts in the supply chain? You've touched on quite a bit of it already. Yeah, I t I'll go back over a few of them. I think if you really want to look at the technologies coming on board, it's this uh, condition-based maintenance plus where we'll go out and you know instrument the airplanes. As we get newer airplanes on board, they have more capability to actually provide us uh, detailed information on what's going on within the systems. Right. That will actually help us be more to refine our predictive capabilities so that we can get out ahead of it. Now, right now, some of these weapon systems are so doggone new, they don't break that often. Right. You would hope they wouldn't break that often. <laughs> okay. So what we'll do is we'll go back and take a look at older assets mm -hmm. or the substructures of older assets. Maybe we, we you know, we, we often are concerned over the landing gear because they take a pretty good beating on all the airplanes. And they're the ones that seem like they, they last the longest. But we've had some problems with the C5 where some of these systems, we've flown them over what their projected lifespan was, and then they, they did do some failing. So what we're looking at is how can we instrument and determine. Now, the CBM Plus is unique in that what we're going to try to predict where the failure will occur, and then we would remove that component before we got to that failure point. Yeah. So we'll make some assumptions in the test that we do in the beginning to be able to find out where the, the failure point might be. We'll bring that back into the supply chain and say, hey, let's, and, and also into the depot, and we'll say, go ahead and pull this apart, and then you tell us how close it was to failure yeah. and all that. And, and they will go back in and take a look so that we can update our, our models mm -hmm. that, that do the predictive nature in this. And I think that will be big in helping us get ahead of the game, which will help us with obsolescence in the industrial supply chain, because we'll, be, we'll know when things are going to fail farther out, and then we can do some calculations and say, if all these things were put on at the same time, they're probably all going to fail at the same time. Right. So what we need to do is we need to have a storehouse of this material ready to go. And when do we start to put those, when do you start putting those materials on the shelf so that we can be ready to do the repair work when it comes along. Right. So money's involved in that as well. So one of those would be CBM Plus. That kind of goes along with the artificial uh, intelligence idea, mm -hmm. which is part of the predictive uh, nature of that. We're bringing on some planning tools as well. We're modernized the way we plan for our supply chain and, and how we bring in uh, uh, to be more uh, future looking in supply chain. A lot of times when we look at the supply chain, we take data from months ago and then we try to project that forward. Mm -hmm. What we'd like to be able to do is take kind of real-time data and be, be able to project that forward, make better estimates and, and move forward in that one. And I think uh, our plans to work in that area of, of our uh, processes that we're doing and make that more uh, make it easier for people to get into the systems. Right now, we have a lot of swivel chair decision making, right? We, mm -hmm. we have three or four <laughs> systems and you have to operate all three or four systems right. to get kind of one picture of where you are. Very mm -hmm. simply, you can make mistakes in that. Right. And what we like to do is aggregate that into one system and actually you'll hear the system escape. We're looking at mm -hmm. using that to be a, a predictive tool for the, uh, a predictive tool 
predict the planning tool for the future. Right. And then uh, I, I told you, and you've hit it again, the, our, the additive manufacturer, I think, are the, be the big things that will help us. Right. Um, I want to add to that. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about additive manufacturing, and the ultimate goal would be able to take that additive manufacturing capability and, and, a, and put it forward with the units. I don't know if we'll, how far forward that might go. Uh, the Marines would love to put it like right where the where it's used, <laughs> right, and all that. Uh, mm -hmm. I think eventually we will get there. <coughs> Excuse me. I think some of the services will drive us faster than than we might do that within within our own Air Force right now because we have more. Uh, we're kind of system uh, based here. I said the the Air Force bases. You could do it at bases. Right. How we deploy it forward. We're, we're continuing to take a look at. But ultimately, the goal would be to certify the capability to be able to be mobile. Right, right now, some of this additive manufacturing, you, you actually certify it for one location. It's not very mobile once it's there. Right. But you'd like to be able to give things to the wing so they could, could produce parts right where they are. And eventually, when they deploy, you'd like to be able to take a deployable package. Mm -hmm. But there are things that we, ha we have to look into. You know, the we have to certify that the data is accu accurate when you send it across lines. You know, nobody's got into the data and changed it to make it something different. So industry's helping us with that, and our own folks in the laboratories are helping us, as well as the, the depots here are looking into all of those things to make sure that we have the best possible capabilities in the future, and we're as modernized as we, as we possibly can to meet the, the changing needs of the Air Force. So I think that's where technology will take us in the future. It's pretty incredible. Um, and, and kind of some parts of that, like we, we talk about the, the swivel chair approach, but even all of these, these modernizations and these, um, the initiatives, we in the Air Force Sustainment Center really embrace the, the art of the possible culture. Um, it's, it's a way of doing business and uh, getting better at what we're doing. And a lot of what you had just talked about um, really embraces that. Can you share some of the successes uh, maybe maybe one or two specific successes that the 448th has had in the AOP. Yeah, I, we sure can. We live by the AOP tenants, mm -hmm. and uh, all the organizations use them day to day to eliminate constraints within the system. So some of the sec some of the very simple things we have done is we had tech order changes. And by looking at how we ran the changes through the process and the multitude of different people that actually supported that process, there were some gaps and seams, and consequently there were some constraints. And so we ran some of those projects through, and uh, what we had done is we were able to cut about 14 months out of the system. So uh, we used to have backlogs that were, you know, previously were in 24-month backlogs. Now we've cut that down to about 10. Still a backlog, so right. I know that we need to do it. But, you know, we are now operating in a steady state where the turnarounds were in 60 days, vice, you know, almost a year. Uh, another area was in the commodity acquisition process where we had done some work within our 638th at Warner Robins, and they took a 33% cut in the, the process of actually getting things through the contracting uh, process. And additionally, I, I'm working with Mr. Bauman, who is the uh, contracting guru for uh, Air Force uh, Systemic Center, and he and I are working to cut down the commodity process We've, we've shaved a good portion, probably around 37% out of the time it took us wow. to get things across there. Mm -hmm. we, we still have a ways to go mm -hmm. in many of these things. We haven't really you know, completely eliminated the seams, 
but we've taken big chunks out of the timeline it, it would take to get a, a contract through. When you think that a major contract from the, what, you know, what I would call from the sparkle in my eye to want a piece of material to the time it actually delivers to the field could be somewhere in excess of two to three years. Wow. If you can cut the time, the front end time back, that gives the contractor more time to provide a good quality product in a timely manner. So if I can cut a year out of something, I basically cut a third, sometimes a half of the whole process out. Right. And the goal is to, to do it smartly so that we're not you know, writing bad contracts, but mm -hmm. at the same time to eliminate the waste of maybe repeat uh, work. There was some work that we were doing and were handed over across the border to our PK folks and they went, well, it's not written right, and they would send it back to us. Mm -hmm. And that would be the delays. Through AOP, we were able to identify those. And then uh, I think just in the repair process itself, we'd done some things to improve the, the, uh, the process of commodity repair. We were able to uh, do things where by using our gated process and looking at the data, we eliminated uh, some of the steps that we had been going through, which was more or less like death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. We were eliminating some of those cuts. We actually put them together. We shrunk the, the process down. We sped up by about 40% in getting some of these repair processes across. We are not mm -hmm. clean. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I fixed the world because I haven't. Mm -hmm. but, we're but through AOP, we're moving in the right direction. What I think is most important is that we probably will never be clean, right? We'll never be 100% parts on the shelf. That's the ultimate goal, but I don't think we'll get there easily. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're not there, okay? You know, we're probably at 75%, 70%, somewhere in that range is usually we hover. How do we make that, that leap to go there, I think, is through the culture of AOP and continuing to drive the concept of AOP in everything we do. We right. even do AOP in my... Uh, when I do in my front office staff and how we can move paper around and make sure that we don't delay critical documents that we have to move. Not, not publications, but there are things like, you know, just the staff work we do, right. and making sure that those, those answers are getting through and getting to where they need to do, or how we hire on people within our own organization so that we bring on those fresh new people, even if we have to lose them later on. <laughs> we bring them on and make them part of the organization as quickly and as efficiently as we can. Right. We've got a ways to go there, but we've got the culture that says, We'll continue to look at the constraints and massage the constraints, and eventually, what happens is we'll 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 work this process to a world be pretty smooth, and we've made great advancements. The the culture has morphed past the concept. Yeah, it's well, it's in the ac say. execution. One yeah. of the things what we want to drive now is we want to make sure that it's. You know, I, I kid around every once in a while and say, I don't want it to be art of the, of the process. I want it to be art of the possible, right. right? You can start doing the art and you can look at the process and you can got the process really good. Mm -hmm. You need the outcome from that process to improve. And that's what the folks are really focused on. They right. want the, the process to be improved. They want to, they want to make a good solid process so the output of that process will be increased. So do I get more parts on the shelf? Do I get them on the shelf faster? Mm -hmm. Do I reduce the time it takes to do things? Do I free people up to be able to do other things that they were unable to do because the process had slowed them down? Right. Awesome. It's, it's all culture based. Mm -hmm. um, so sir, wrapping things up, um, I don't know exactly what your future plans are, and you may not know yet either, or how much longer you're going to work before you retire. But uh, eventually, you know, you'll either retire, or, or you know, you yourself will move on to to a bigger uh, or a different things. position. You know, <laughs> okay. uh, maybe an artisan one day. But <laughs> but before you do go and and leave the 448, what efforts would you like to see happen in the future uh, before the end of your career here or time here? Well. Um, a couple things. Um, number one, 
I've got great people that work. I mean, they are literally the best people I have ever, ever worked with in my 40 plus one years of either in the Air Force or my time in the, in the Army. Nice. They've, they've done great work here. I want to continue to grow and sustain that level uh, and improve it if I can. Yeah. If I can make it even better, I want to improve the, the, uh, the great quality of people that I have. Right. I've got people who are, consider, who are very uh, concerned about the mission. I've got people who are very concerned about the people as well. They all, we're a big family here, right. and I want to continue to perpetuate that and leave that. The second thing is I want to eventually eliminate supply as a restriction to readiness. Mm. I mean, we always look at it, you know, you know, when there's something broken, usually it's because there wasn't a part there. The ultimate goal would be that that, that is never an issue, right. you know, and that would help us do that. Are we going to get there? No. But ultimately, that should be the goal that we, we would look at. Right. And the last thing I leave, and I think that's most important, and I think my people understand it very well, um, everyone that we work with understands that we've got some friend, a family member, extended family member who's been deployed somewhere in the military. Almost everybody that I work with, very few nowadays don't have somebody that, that they either personally have in their family or that they personally know right. and all that. And I always want them to know that they should never judge their impact of the mission by their proximity to it, right? right. Never underestimate the impact you will have on that mission by the distance you are from the, from the fight. Right. So out here, you might seem like you're thousands of miles away, but yet my people have immense impact on the ability for the Air Force to carry on its mission. And I think today we've kind of talked about that. I've got great people. They're doing great work. They'll continue to grow, do great work for the military, for the Air Force specifically, in years to come. And I'm very proud to have spent time with them and, and been part of that family. Incredible. And sir, with that, um, I do thank you very much for, for your time today. Uh, it's been very insightful. Uh, there's a lot going on over here in the supply chain. Um, and so with that, uh, thanks everybody for joining us today. Please don't forget to download, subscribe, and uh, of course rate us on iTunes. That's where you can find us. Uh, we'll also be coming to other platforms soon, so be looking forward to that in the future. And don't forget to leave us comments and even tell us what you might want to hear, what you don't want to hear, uh, things that we can do better. We're, we are also practicing the art of the possible over here on, on our side of the world. Um, also, don't forget to find us on social media. Fa uh, Facebook and Tinker is at Tinker and Twitter is at Team underscore Tinker. And also go check out our YouTube page. We have now loaded up a YouTube page and, and we have some things going on out there on YouTube. So until next time, everybody have a great day and a great week.